The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Two Millennials One Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Gable, and today I am joined by a very special guest host, Sean Mites. Glad to be here. Sean Mites is back, everybody. He will be filling in for my regular co host, Abby, who is facing the trials of growing up. That's a hard place to be, the end of the senior year. Absolutely. So many thoughts to Abby. She'll be back next week, I'm sure. Reminder to our listeners, we have an upcoming episode entitled Ask Us Anything. Uh, If you have a question or just a general quandary about this podcast or Abby or I or Sean Mines even, I'm sure he'd come back and answer a question or two. Feel free to send that in to our email or any way that you're listening to this podcast. Just comment it, send it in. Again, our email is to the number millennials, one the number podcast at gmail.com. Today's episode, we're talking about public education. Conveniently, it is Teacher Appreciation Week. Do you feel appreciated, teacher? I will say, like, I don't need cake. I don't need cookies as appreciation. Sometimes the best appreciation is let me do my job. Don't ride my case. Don't question my abilities. Let me do my job, treat me as a professional, and uh, sign my memory book at the end of the year. Absolutely. I felt extra appreciated this week with the emails and the cake and all that stuff, and I agree, I don't need cake. No part of me needs cake. But it's nice when a student will come up to you and be like, hey, I heard it's Teacher Appreciation Week. Thanks, dude, for being not sucky. I appreciate that. (laughs) Fair enough. If I had a, a complaint about appreciation, I think parents, if they could appreciate what we do more, that would be great. And I, I think that just goes as a whole heading into this education topic of a lot of people do not think teaching is a valued profession. And I feel that from time to time. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, like, this is a biased view, obviously, but I wouldn't mind being appreciated by a few more dollars in my wallet. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. There are other ways that we could be appreciated. That's right. You know, we provide a basic fundamental service for all people in our community and uh, wouldn't mind be appreciated with some besides cake. I mean, if we can afford the extra insurance dollars for treating type 2 diabetes given to yourself by eating too much cake, sure. then surely we can afford a few more dollars for teacher pay and general appreciation over the course of the year. Preach. Okay, getting into this, besides the cake complaints and the lack of dollars in my pocket, I looked up some stats, as I always do. The University of Chicago has this project called Gen Forward, where they do bi-monthly surveys of the millennial population. They surveyed in July 2017 a lot of millennials about their feelings on public education. The overall takeaway from the survey was millennials feel that the best way to improve K-12 education are the following three things, and you hear these a lot when talking about education. Number one, increase school funding. Number two, improve teacher training, and number three, increased teacher pay. We clearly just danced around those topics previously, but do you agree if we address those things, could that improve public education? Yeah, I really think so. And a lot of people think about increasing teacher pay as in the effect of that would somehow be that the teachers that are already in schools will magically become better teachers. You know, like I would be more motivated to do a better job if I was paid more. I don't know that that's the case necessarily. I think that the draw is more of an economic one where if you increase teacher pay, 
the quality of teacher will increase in terms of the quality of person that would realistically consider teaching as a career. And so you wouldn't lose, you know, potentially good teachers to other occupations that pay better. I don't know that I would necessarily be more motivated. I would complain less about not being able to afford meat in our budget. That's a real thing, by the way. We cannot afford meat every every single week. But yeah, that's what we're talking about with increasing pay. The training, like I get that, but it needs to be functional and teacher-driven and teacher-focused. And that's one of the, the issues surrounding professional development now is like it's top-down or even from state-directed. It's not going to necessarily make me better. And then the funding issue, that could really legitimately directly impact students in terms of quality of textbooks, technology, and just the hardware or software that they have available to work with. So I could see those three things definitely having an impact. Increasing funding would have a direct and immediate impact. The other two would be more of a long-term impact. I agree completely. Everyone points to those three things as things that could improve education. And I understand the concerns and the fears of addressing those issues or the resistance to it, but it's not something you can just throw money at. And that that's something we see just in our society is that, hey, if we just devote more money to this, it'll magically fix itself. Sean's exactly right. Teachers need to be involved. If you're going to give us more money to do this, we need to be the ones making the decisions of how it's implemented. And unfortunately, that's not how things are typically done. So not saying not do it, but if you're going to do it, let's do it right. Like you said, meat. It'd be nice to afford meat. (laughs) It would be. On that note, there are statistics out there that say that the U.S. spends more money per student than any other nation in the world. And the immediate statistic that follows those up is that we do not score as well on the international tests or when they pair us with other nations like Finland, Japan. Like We wind up out of the top 10 on multiple of those uh, international tests. But my question is, like, we educate everyone. We educate every student. I think people use that... As- as like, well, we already spend so much money on education and we are not getting these great results. But it's my understanding that in some of these other countries, not everyone gets a fair and equitable public education, that they would be tracked into certain lanes depending on their abilities or class. The comparison with other nations doesn't bother me that much. I don't focus on that personally as an educator. If my students can leave my classroom and succeed in American society and we can continue to be the greatest country on earth and there's debate on whether that's happening right now, but that's when I feel that we're doing okay. I don't care if we're seventh in reading in the world. If we can just continue to innovate as a society and as a country, I feel like education's doing its job. These measures, and this goes to testing and all kinds of things, a lot of this is arbitrary and it doesn't truly reflect what's happening in society. I would go a step further. Like, clearly we have a pro-education bias. We're both public educators. Sure. But I would go a step further and talk about society's value that it puts on education in the first place. Not a dollar amount, but in the value that is put on education in the household, in media, in the movies that, you know, students are watching. Sometimes it's almost like the idiot is the one that is glorified in our television shows and in our movies. And we glorify that, particularly with boys, less so with females. But that value that goes into education, it's important. We can't teach somebody who doesn't want to learn. Teaching is what we do. Learning is what students do. I go back to like attention and attendance and stuff. 
The root word of that is tend. So I think like what shepherds do with their flocks and stuff is to care for them. But if students don't care about what they're learning, then it's going to be tough for them to show. And if society doesn't bolster that as well, like the teacher can be as creative and clever and humorous and engaging as they want to be, but you're fighting an uphill battle. And you hit on a a brilliant point of this anti-intellectualism that has... I mean, it hasn't swept America, but exists in America. We do not value education as much as Japan or as Norway or these other countries. We need to have a paradigm shift if we're going to change our performance on tests and our our abilities to succeed. We've got to start valuing these things. I mean, I remember being a middle school kid. I was identified as gifted, which you would think would be praised and really cool. But man, kids hated you for that. If you were a gifted kid, you got made fun of and bullied. And that sucked. I really hated that. Not saying that those kids need to be taken down the street in a parade, but you shouldn't feel like crap for being smart. And that that happens day in and day out in this country. Yeah, I mean, think about the monikers we put on that, like nerd, dork, geek. I think some of those terms have, they've been coming around. We might be on the edge of some kind of movement or something. You know, even shows like uh, Big Bang Theory, where the nerd is the cool character in that show. But yeah, it, it really is a problem. What do you think the purpose of public education is? Well, again, my view is kind of slanted. I teach government. I teach social studies. And so for me, even historically, the purpose of the education is to bolster our democracy. We need an educated populace that can reasonably consider democratic issues, can have a debate and discussion and make decisions about the future of our country. So that's a big thing. And we have a mission statement at our school that is talking about developing students students to become more productive citizens and to take steps to better the world. I should probably have that memorized, but I don't. But that's the goal of the students, that that they will be able to go from our school into the community and to make the community, and then by extension the country, and then further the world, make that a better place. I think that is kind of a high-minded thing, but that to me is it. That's the purpose of education in America. The reason I asked is part of that millennial study that I was referencing earlier. 39% of millennials said that the main goal of the public education system in the United States was to promote academics and the college track and getting kids educated. 29% said the main goal of public education is to provide skills for trades and to go to work. And then 31% of the millennial generation said it's there to be the informed citizen or the, the good U.S. component. And I thought that was interesting. You almost have a third, third, third split between, I mean, three things that public education should be doing. And I think that's a fair trade. Absolutely. We should be creating people that can go out and be an educated voter and a participant in government and society. They should also have an opportunity to go seek higher education if they want to. They should be prepared for that. At the same time, we are having this debate currently in the school system as far as maybe college isn't for everybody. Maybe we should equip these students to understand how to finance a home and get a mortgage and go get a job on the railroad or subway or wherever they choose to work. I mean, we're having those debates right now of what is the best approach. And honestly, I think it's all of them. All three of those need to be addressed. I don't think it's one. You look at the way that the public education system is structured now. I'm going to get into my history nerd mode here real quick. It goes back to 14th, 15th century Renaissance man, Renaissance woman idea, either one. We are challenged to try and create well-rounded people who can you know master a bunch of different things or at least be functional in a bunch of different things and so we have gym classes and music classes and humanities like English and reading and social studies and mathematics and science so that they're exposed to a broad range of topics 
and we don't pigeonhole people into certain things because you don't know what some people are going to be good at or interested in at any particular time. And so it really should be, and I don't think about the economics of jobs, or if I did, I wouldn't be a teacher. But yeah, that two thirds of what you said dealt with the economics of our society. I did just focus on the political kind of social aspect of that. That makes a lot of sense. Like we do train people. It's not vocational training necessarily, but to go on and live your life, you need to be able to have a job and earn money and gather resources. There are some groups within society that think we don't do a good enough job with that. That's the feedback I hear from former students. I don't know if you hear that as well, but the things we're dropping the ball on are things like, how do I buy a house or what's a W-2? And there's not a whole lot of that. I mean, there are personal finance classes, I suppose, but we are focused sometimes heavily on getting these kids to college. Yeah, you said specifically like the W-2. Government teacher, I cover taxes. What are taxes? What are they used for? And then I do have students like, can you teach me how to do my taxes? I'm like, no, because I don't know what job you have. I am not an accountant. I can tell you like how to do this or what you need to do in order to do that. Like find an accountant. They can do your taxes. Like find TurboTax. It can tell you how to do your taxes. But the ability to read the TurboTax program, the ability to problem solve and organize yourself. We do teach soft skills that address those things but the idea that somehow that they will come out of the education system knowing everything that they will ever need to know is a ridiculous expectation we don't know in the first place what they're going to need to know in every circumstance and situation so you teach math and people are what we're gonna use math for all you do in math is solve problems please tell me you're gonna have a life with no problems like, tell me that. I will be so happy for you, and you won't need math a lick. But, I mean, they don't. It's abstract for them, and they don't necessarily get that. But we can't predict everything. But I can teach you how to problem solve. I can give you problems. I can help you learn how to read and analyze and understand. And you can take those skills and apply them to any situation. That's fair. That's the best counter argument I've heard to those complaints. That's what the school system should do is we should give you the tools that you can then go synthesize somewhere else and learn how to file your taxes or learn who to ask to learn how to get a mortgage or buy a home. Called research. That's what we call that. Research. People should do it you know what this might be a gripe that you cut but i'm gonna say it anyways there was something on the news about the school cutting out analog clocks because nobody reads analog clocks anymore and the comments on that were ridiculous my wife was telling me about this i didn't actually read it myself because it's dumb but what we talked about with society like how many people have analog clocks hanging in their house anyway and then the expectation is like we can't just take away these tools we're not educating students you know like we gotta do all this stuff you know what take out your sundial and tell me what time it is. Also, that's not where you put a comma. So if you're going to complain about the failure of the public education system, <laughs> use it in your own performance on your grammar and your Facebook posts. That, to me, <laughs> that's a rant. I'm ranting. But you can't blame public education for all of the ills of society. We're doing the best that we can with little reinforcement from anybody outside the public education system. And so, oh, they're taking analog clocks out of school. Put one up in your house. Like, get rid of your digital clocks then. I like to point out that in the place we're recording, there's an analog clock on the wall. But you're a math teacher and a public educator. Indeed. There's a sundial in the garden. There absolutely is. I read something interesting just recently. It was talking about Generation Z as being a, a publisher generation. 
they are you know engaged with social media and on their cell phones and they don't just consume news and read news they want to be able to publish news and the article i was reading got into figurative generations the post figurative generation is one where the adults can tell the children what to expect from the world and how to handle it so I mean, that would be go back to like, this is how you sew. This is how, you know, you change the oil in your vehicle. A co-figurative generation is one where the adults and the children are learning, kind of developing together. And I kind of feel like that's where we are or were recently. Thinking of the millennial generation, I agree that we were figuring things out with our parents at the same time. Yeah, like my dad has a cell phone and I have a cell phone. So like we sit and... Hey, did you know you could do this? <laughs> like, right. But the next generation, Generation Z, the idea was that they're going to be prefigurative. That it's going to be something that this generation has to figure out almost on their own, or kind of in advance of the technology that already exists. Our world is changing so rapidly. Technology is changing at such an exponential pace that it kind of goes back to what we're talking about. Like we can't teach them everything they will ever need to know because we have no idea what that is going to be. I'm talking about cars that are going to drive themselves. I can't tell anybody how they're going to do that. I don't know. We are equipping students to try and figure out the world as it is bombarding them with new technology, information, connections. It will be a maelstrom of understanding. It just will be a constant bombardment of intellectual information like we've never seen before. And that's slightly terrifying. That puts even more of a burden on us as educators to somehow prepare them for something, like you said, that we don't know about, but not even prepare them for that. Just prepare them with the basic skills to survive and thrive in that environment. That's a tall order. Education has to be innovative, and we have to maybe get away from some of the older ways that we've been doing things. I mean, there's a place for rote memorization. There's a place for just learning and knowing things, but the application of that information and the synthesis of that information is going to be key for the future. That's what I think as far as how to address some of this, not to crap on any of my coworkers or the school, but I think there are some electives that exist that are truly becoming obscure. I don't even want to throw one out, but I think there are some things that students study currently that will not help them in this ever-changing environment. So my idea, not even my idea, things that are going around in education currently are to maybe reduce the number of those and then have classes where innovation and entrepreneurship and those type of things are taught and facilitated as in, hey, kid, you need a project to accomplish and you have a year to do it, go. And let's think of all the things we can learn to make this happen. Almost feel like that would be a better model. Now, I'm not advocating that like, okay, anything that's a foreign language, gone. Parenting classes, gone. Foods and nutrition, gone. Film history, gone. I'm not saying that. I'm saying maybe reduce the number of those and getting more hands-on experience with the things we're heading into in the future. That's a good thought. I mean, the elective classes is where the freedom is for the teachers. I'm going to throw myself under the bus a little bit, but at the same time, there's hope. Even in some of those electives, I teach a newspaper class that is clearly going by the wayside. But there are things that I am trying to do to move that towards the future. I understand that most of our readership is not in the monthly publication of our newspaper. And we're talking about ways that we can increase the school newspaper's influence through social media 
media and websites and podcasts and video blogs and things like that. There's a lot we could do to make it more of a publisher type of class where the newspaper model is just, it is going by the wayside. It is not something that people really utilize quite as much anymore. I'll give that class credit. That is the least worthless elective there is. That is the closest to an innovative class. You have little activists in that class, and that is the coolest thing as an educator. I know that boils blood of some people, but those kids are learning how to interact, and it's not about the newspaper. None of that is about the newspaper. It's about the connections. It's about digging in. It's about researching and gaining a foothold in the world, and those kids are better consumers and citizens because of being in that class. Education has to be more than, you know, I teach history. It's got to be more than dead people. We have to be able to connect it to ourselves and figure some stuff out. Agreed. And if you're listening to this and you're in public school right now, look out for those classes, the ones that will get you involved and hands-on. Find those classes and get in them. Those are the ones you're going to learn the most in and not to shame history or Algebra 2 or any of those. We need that core. You need to be a learned consumer and have this base of knowledge or you will be even worse off. But if you're picking an elective, maybe don't pick... Walking for life. Walking for life. Ding, 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 ding. Maybe don't pick that one. You can walk literally any time of day. You can walk to the the newspaper class if you want, but you don't need a class where you learn how to walk. You need a class where you learn how to be a good citizen and learn how to produce things. Agreed. But again, we don't value education enough to do, oh, it'd be hard. I got a life. I gotta like get on my Snapchat and take pictures of myself and go play some Fortnite. Depressing. How do you feel about charter schools? As a public educator, I am not a fan. The idea of a public school is to be able to present everyone, regardless of economic wealth, social status, present them with an opportunity for education. This is 21st century America. This is not 18th century France, where, you know, we educate the elite because why would we fill the heads of the lower classes with high ideals they'll never be able to escape from? I know that charter schools are supposed to be somehow egalitarian. They are not oversaw by any outside source. They are for-profit businesses. The charter school model is a private sector model that will not yield the results that people think that it will yield. To think that corporations will care about educating people whose return on investment may be less than profitable. I don't trust that to corporations myself. I really feel like the best way to educate people is through government education, which is what we're doing. You start tossing those words around like that. It's like, oh, the brainwashing, the government marching line soldiers. But what we give people is public education provided by taxpayer money. I will concur with all of that, but I will speak the fact of our generation. Millennials love, love charter schools. 71% support vouchers for low-income students to attend private schools, and 57% support charter schools just straight up. So... I agree as a public educator that charter schools are garbage, but I do understand why millennials are poised to accept them or be willing to try them out. And it's because there are some school districts in this country where the achievement gap, if you will, between white kids and kids of color is massive. And there are all of these structural problems. How do you fix that? Well, the quick way to fix that is to give a kid a voucher so they can go to the private school or they can go to the other school 
that's doing better. And I understand it through that. I do not want any child to be disadvantaged because of public schools. And unfortunately, that is happening in this country. But my fix would be, let's fix the public schools so there doesn't have to be a charter school. I agree. Like, there are issues with income inequality because it's based on tax rates and property tax. Yep, property tax. So if you live in a neighborhood with low property values, the school is going to suffer as a result of that. We don't have a way to fix that income inequality. There was a book out decades ago in the 90s called Savage Inequalities. And it talked about that because there are places where the poverty affects the schools. And so like we're not able to give them the quality education that they need because of the tax inequality that goes into that. We're not even too far away. Maybe even the next district over may have the property taxes and the property values that would produce a school that would be able to fund more things. And so the inequality of the income system is kind of an issue. And I don't know how to solve that. Quick fixes are not the right move. It's only addressing a symptom and not a cause. And you have to get to the root of the issue. America has been on a course to fight inequality for a long time. We're really bad at it and it takes decades, but we do it eventually. How do you feel about retention versus social promotion? Retention, as in holding students back that aren't meeting standards. Social promotion, moving students ahead who aren't meeting standards. Or there's this third category where people think both of those are bad and we need to change the system entirely. My wife deals with this. She teaches second grade and she gets students that don't have the skills necessary. Students are leaving her class who don't have the skills necessary. And so like a lot of the times, those are the same students. They will see success in second grade. If they come in reading at a kindergarten level and they leave reading at a first grade level, they've seen the success. Like they have improved, but it's still not, they're not going to catch up. When is that going to happen? If it's done, it needs to be done early on. I think what happens is by the time we get to high school, you can fail a class and have to take it over again. But students getting to high school without being able to read or do basic mathematics, that's a problem that we need to address. I think retention, like that's the point of what we're trying to do. If somebody's not getting it, we're doing them a disservice by saying, hey, go on, you're fine. Yep, next grade, next problem. Like it's not an assembly line. Yeah, when they research these things, uh, you have a lot of people that say, oh, we need to fail these kids. They need to be held back and retained until they understand. That not only has psychological effects on the child that typically the child never really grows from that. They don't suddenly learn fourth grade material from being held back in fourth grade. The other end of that social promotion, that's terrible as well. Now you're in fifth grade and you're reading at a third grade level and now you reach high school and you can't add two things together. Uh, They're both bad. So the thing that people have started talking about is let's abolish grades. Let's have ability grouping and not age grouping. You and you and you, you all read at a third grade level. One of you is 11. One of you is eight. One of you is five. You're in a class together. Does that make you uncomfortable? That ain't gonna happen. I agree it will never happen. We're too entrenched in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Here's the problem as I see it. If we move them on, and I was clearly advocating for just holding them back, but we have to be able to support that student where they are in the fifth grade. If they don't have the reading, then we need to make sure that we have a system in place or the necessary time and personnel to be able to get them to where they need to be. We don't have that in our district because we don't fund 
paras and people that can help them, reading specialists and speech pathologists. We don't have enough of those to be able to get them along. So if we're going to move them along, you need to be able to address the issue and try to solve the problem from where it's at instead of just like pretending nothing is wrong. Yeah, I think you solved it in an easier method than what I presented. If you provide the support to the student, then it's not social promotion. If they, if you can get them to where they need to be, then you've eliminated social promotion. And there's no need to retain at that point either. So what grade would you give public schools overall? I always relate public schools and teachers more like carpenters. So you can grade not like the school system. You grade the product. So the student is the product. I get wood. Some of it's fine mahogany. Some of it's rotten old driftwood or crate boards, you know, and I'm going to do the best I can with the mahogany and the oak and the rotten old crate board. There's a purpose for every wood, but as the carpenter, you could grade me, I guess, but grade it based on the student that comes out of my classroom. I wouldn't want to be lumped in with the public school system. Your test is flawed, sir. I reject your your test as a whole. You look at like where America is now and like the person that we elected to be president and the comments that are on Facebook and the social discourse. And I don't think it's the public school to blame. Like we are fighting the battle against those things, but we're fighting against a culture and a society that does not value what we are doing. I don't know what grade I would give public education on the whole. Could we do better? Yes. So is it an A? No. Are we failing? No. So let's go with a C plus. Well, folks, that was another exciting episode of Two Millennials, One Podcast. I think we solved all the education problems in the entire universe. We'll go ahead and do our song picks of the week. You got one for us? So my song pick of the week is High Enough featuring propaganda by a group called The Grey Havens. Heard that on the radio today, and I don't like just listen to music anymore, but I had to play the song over and over again. Touched me. Wow. My song pick this week is called When You Were Mine by a band called The Night Terrors of 1927, which is a classy name. Night Terrors of 1927. Thank you all for checking us out. I hope you enjoyed our guest host, and a big thanks to Sean Mines for joining us and filling in for Abby this week. Glad to do it. This is always a, a real pleasure. Check us out next week for another enthralling episode. Have a great week, folks.